Hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. It's really great to have Josh and, and our buddy Greg Hernandez leading us in worship. In fact, I think Greg's mom is maybe online watching. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure she was there. Hey, just one announcement before we jump into the message. This coming Wednesday, uh, we're kind of doing something kind of special and unique. You know, we've been doing on Wednesday night desserts with Josh. And so we just felt like you guys were all left out. So we're going to give dessert to everybody who wants to come by the church. And so uh, a little feels like summer event. This was Debbie Vare's idea. So smart, so genius. We just love to lay eyes on some of you and give you a tasty treat. And so uh, this Wednesday night, just come by the church parking lot. We'll be here, the staff and some of the leadership team. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll either have gloves or masks on and be sure everything's, you know, properly done. But we would love to hand you and your family and your kids or whoever's with you a tasty uh, dessert. Six o'clock, uh, we'll have an in and we'll have an out and everybody will be able to see exactly what's happening. So we would love for you. Here's the details up close for you, okay? You can see that on your screen. Uh, just stop by six to seven here at the church over on Park Street Come by, get a dessert. We would just love to see you, okay? That'd be great. So this pandemic time, I've mentioned before, we've been doing some projects at the house. We've been doing things around the house. So one of the things we did is we redid our closet, the closet that Donna and I use. And when we were about done, there was one more piece that we installed in the closet. It was a mirror that we had bought. And uh, we needed it on one wall there, of course, just to you know make sure we put our pants on or whatever before we leave the house. And so... Installed that mirror, put it up, got it taken care of. I left the closet. A few minutes later, Donna comes to me and says, that mirror you put up? I said, yeah, how does it look? Does it work? And she said, yeah, I mean, it kind of works, but it makes me look fat. And I thought, ah, oh, this is, I think this is a trap. I know it's a trap, but I'm not sure how. And so I just thought, I, I just need to be careful in this, uh, this little exchange. And so I said, oh, I, I'll go check it out. I'll go look at it. And so I did. I walked in the closet. Before I'm installing it, and I'm up close, just kind of taking care of business. But stepped back some distance and looked at myself in the mirror. And, and sure enough, it made me, made, made me look fat too. I mean, fatter, fatter is really the goal. So I said to her, ah, oh, this, you're right. This thing makes me look fat. If I'd stopped the sentence right there, that would have been good, but of course I didn't. I said, this thing makes me look fat too. Ah, and there I stepped in it. And this was a problem, you know. So now we're both kind of uh, trying to figure this out. Now, now, look, this mirror is a bit like a fun house mirror. I, I'm a solid 5'9". I mean, maybe even an eighth above 5'9". Not that I'm keeping track. But this mirror, I'm looking in it, and it makes me look like I'm, I don't know, 5'7 or so. There's nothing wrong with 5'7, but I'm not 5'7. And so now it's a problem. This mirror, we got to do something about it. And then we begin to think, you know, I've eaten everything I want to eat during this, this deal and uh, this pandemic. Maybe a mirror that makes me look a little shorter and a little wider is to my advantage, right? I mean, maybe it will inspire me to change uh, some habits, maybe eat a little healthier. But a good mirror, finally decided, is really important. After walking by that mirror four, five, six times, we thought, it's gone. So we took it down, and we got a good mirror, a good you know, mirror that looks, you know, makes me look just as fat as I normally am. And uh, of course, you know what we did with uh, the old mirror? It's in the guest room. Perfect. And so in this series, while we wait, we're looking at a letter that Paul wrote 
to a church, ancient church, city called Philippi, letters called Philippians, it operates like a mirror. Paul gives us a chance to look at some very interesting phrases, some illuminating ideas, maybe some pictures of who we're supposed to be and compare ourselves, our behaviors and our actions, our relationships with the words that he shares, and it becomes this mirror. For Paul, we get a glimpse of what he uses for a mirror in this passage. Now, we're in chapter 2, and this passage that we're in, this is out of my Bible, right in the beginning verses of chapter 2, starting with verse 6 and all the way down to verse 11, there's this incredible poem in fact, if you open up your Bible and look at the text, there's some you know, weird indentions. It's a, it's a literary work. It's a, it's a poem that is about the Messiah. It's the Messiah poem of Philippians. And it's one of the most beautiful and poignant and picturesque ideas all throughout the New Testament that describes who Jesus is. And it does so in just a few verses. And it really forms the foundation, these few verses, chapter 2, verses 6 or 11, it forms the foundation of the whole Philippian letter. In fact, I would say that these verses form the foundation of Paul's entire picture, his entire theology about who Jesus is and how Paul can engage in the life of Jesus. So, I mean, I want you to grasp it. When it starts, he says... Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, you may remember a different version. You may uh, have memorized part of this as you were growing up. It's a great passage to commit to memory, but it paints a picture that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, all the way back to Genesis. In fact, there wouldn't be any Jewish man or woman that would read this passage and not think about Adam who while he's in the garden decides that equality with God is absolutely something to be used to his own advantage, or as the NIV used to say, something to be grasped. That's exactly what caused the first sin, is Adam making the decision that he wanted to be like God. And as these words begin to unfold, we begin to understand, scholars believe, that this phraseology, these words together, in the Greek, of course, the original language, formed the contents of a hymn that the early church would sing together. Now, these verses, this section, the section that follows, they tell the story of the gospel, and it gives us an understanding of how Paul saw his life. Now, don't miss this. There's some very practical stuff we'll get to, but I want you to understand the theological foundation of what Paul is going to tell us to do and how he's going to tell us to behave. Listen, for Paul, he didn't just believe in Jesus. He did, of course, and he understood that Jesus was God's son. But Paul didn't just understand that this was a belief to be held or even a conviction to have. Paul saw his entire life Everything about his life, how he built relationships, where he traveled, who he went with, what he spoke, what he thought about, the affections of his heart. Paul saw his entire life as an opportunity to actually participate in the story of Jesus. And he framed everything he thought and did, all of his decisions around this one idea, that his life should be framed within the story 
of Jesus. And so this is our challenge, followers of Jesus, that in the book of Acts are first called Christians in a city where Paul planted a church. Christians, that means little Christ, that we just don't assent to a belief that Jesus is God's son. We've decided to pattern our life after his, to take his teachings and live them out, to understand what he says about how we should treat others and forgive and love and show mercy and grace and feed the hungry. All of these commands of Christ wrapped up in this understanding of love. This is Paul's picture of the gospel. And so it, it is his pattern of life, and he includes it in Philippians for that reason. It's how he defines his purpose. It's how he measures his success as a man, as a person, as an image bearer made in God's own image. And so this poem unfolds, and it's beautiful. In fact, the first half is all about the cross and the descent that Jesus made into humility, being found in human likeness. And then the, the second half, it begins this way, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. These are phrases you're familiar with, but they're included in this ancient hymn. It's the story of the gospel, the death the resurrection. It, it means that as we read these ancient words, maybe even memorize them, that we find them powerful. They inform our lives. That when you wake up in the morning and you decide to go about the business of your day, they actually give you some structure about how to make that happen. When somebody pokes at you and decides that they're going to try to take advantage of you, they help us understand how we're to react, how we're to engage in return. They are really our instructions for life. And so this early hymn, included in Philippians chapter 2, Paul does that and he includes it for the Philippians and for us for all time so that we can participate in the story of Jesus too. Not just so that we can believe, not just so that we can show up at church, not just so that we can maybe read our Bibles or commit some verses to memory or decide that we are a group of people that know who Jesus is, but that we can engender our lives, the direction of Jesus' actions and thoughts, that we participate in his death and resurrection as well. And it's true. It's real. And it's the only way that you and I are going to find meaning and purpose. It's the only way that we will find a path that will make sense in this world and for most of us, we can keep the chaos or the mess or the disaster of the world at bay because we live fairly comfortable lives. But for the last few months, that comfort has been completely disrupted. And the result has been that we have, well, we've been asking different questions about how to live our lives or what our relationships really should be like. Or maybe some of our relationships, well, we found the weak spots in them. And the result, of course is a lot of questions around identity and purpose and meaning. And so in this first 11 verses of chapter 2, Paul gives us a roadmap. He helps us understand how 
we can find purpose, even in a, a time that's chaotic. And he writes it as a man who knows what he's talking about. Because we've mentioned he's under his own lockdown. He's chained up. He's in a Roman prison, probably near the city of Rome. He's awaiting a trial, could mean his execution. So he's had to wrestle with the issues of life and death the same way that you and I do now when we read the headlines of every day. And so his words could not be more applicable and appropriate. And so when he begins the chapter, he starts like this. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, therefore, if you have any, now what he's going to do, he's going to lay out four big ifs for us. And Paul's going to help us understand as he asks us these questions, they're not rhetorical. Paul wants you to think about them. He wants you to consider these questions and really ponder your relationship with God, your state before God. And he's going to lay these out and he's going to give us an understanding and a perspective about grace, maybe that we've never had before. And the perspective begins with this. God gives, and he gives all of these things in, in countless ways, in unbelievable amounts, and he gives before we give anything back to him. And because he does this, Paul wants to just remind us a bit of what we have in Christ. God gives these things before we change before we alter one part of our lifestyle. The moment we understand who God is, then all of this comes flooding our way. And so he asks these questions. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, have you ever stopped and really considered, and many of you have, maybe it's just a moment of worship, or maybe it's a time when you're out in creation or you consider how large and how big the world is, that because of your being united with Christ, you no longer carry the weight or the power of sin, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, have you ever rested in the truth that God's love for you is completely and utterly unconditional? That there's nothing you can do to earn it, that it has flowed your way, not because of any merit of your own, any comfort from his love. And then he says this, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, the, the word there is koinonia, and it's the Greek word that symbolizes really the fellowship of the church. Have you ever walked with somebody in faith and shared something with them and thought, we're the same, we get this together, we're in this together, spiritual bond with others. If you're like me, you've missed this more than anything else over the last couple of months. I mean, it's there when we maybe connect on a Zoom meeting or have a phone call with somebody, but to see somebody face-to-face -face and be reminded of the things that you share, I'll never view our time together uh, in the same way. The connection that we feel together, the common sharing in the spirit that we have. So if you have any of that, and then he says this fourth one, if you have any tenderness or compassion, have you ever experienced this overwhelming sense of care for somebody else. Paul would say that this is because you bear the fingerprint of God, that you've been made in his image. And so that feeling that you have, compassion for somebody else's pain, empathy, we call it. I like the way the King James says it. it says this, if any bowels, you read that right, not vowels, bowels and mercies, because, well, for the, for the Greek language and for the Hebrew culture, this compassion starts as a stirring deep in your stomach. I mean, it feels like there is a pain in your stomach. This is why they translated this long ago in the King James. And if you've ever felt any of that compassion and love for somebody, 
any of these things are true? I mean, come on, that's quite a list. If you've had any encouragement or comfort or common sharing, tenderness or compassion. What's been your experience like with God? I know, I know sometimes uh, his followers, believers, they can be a real piece of work. I mean, I, I can be, it turns out you can be too, and we can treat each other in some very harmful and maybe hurtful ways. But maybe you've experienced some of these things in the context of God's grace and his goodness and his people. And Paul starts this way on purpose. If you've read much of Paul's letters or his writings, you know that he takes a bit of a, a lawyer approach. He's not being just rhetorical. He, he wants you to just pause and consider just for a moment before he's beginning to lay out our behavior response. He wants you just to consider the goodness of God and how good God has been to us, to love us and offer us Jesus and forgive us, put us in a place of unconditional mercy and love. And as we do that, then he begins to lay out what the result is and what the response is. He says this, if you have any of that in your life, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, the same agape love that is demonstrated in the way we treat one another, in the things that we do, in the way that we are kind and generous. And all of these things represent this same love the same love that Jesus gave to us, demonstrated by the sacrifice on the cross, and being one in spirit and of one mind. In other words, our words and our actions flow from this thankfulness that we have because of what God has done for us. Now, in these 11 verses, we've already seen some of the literary poem, and now you're beginning to see Paul's practical nature in these 11 short verses in Philippians chapter 2. Paul does an incredible thing. He lays out the theology, the God thinking behind why any of this matters, and he does so by using a current hymn that the Philippians probably sing in church. And as he lays out this theology, it tells the story of the gospel, of the incredible birth of Jesus eventually the death of Jesus, and of course the resurrection of Jesus, but it also includes some allusions to the incredible kingdom that is to come and Jesus' final and full reign as king. And then now he's giving us the rationale, the reason why, and then in just a couple of verses he begins to lay out the behavior, the practical aspects of the behavior and what it looks like if we're going to allow our lives, what we do and what we don't do, to be engaged with, to fully participate in the story of Jesus, because that's what we do. And so now, in the next verse, verse 3, chapter 2, he begins to lay it out, and here's what he says. Now, if all that's been a little heady for you, or maybe a little above the clouds, or if you're thinking, get to the point, then this is the point. This is what Paul is going to drive us toward. Now, you'll end up back at the reason and the rationale behind it, because living out this behavior requires that it comes from a place and a heart and a motivation that Paul has already laid out. But this is the practical stuff that he tells us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's a great phrase, but it gets even more applicable when you look at a couple other translations. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
There's a couple others that kind of help us understand, a couple other translations. Be free from pride-filled opinions. Just take a moment and let that sink in. Let that phrase maybe uh, hit its mark for my life, your life, not for somebody else's, just allow it to hit your life. Then he says in another translation, never act from motives of rivalry. Now, as I read these translations, the Holy Spirit just kind of gently convicted me about some of my own thoughts through the pandemic and through our experience of lockdown and, and us watching this thing unfold on a global scale and us trying to get our minds around it. As, as things began to happen back in March and we all began to read headlines and pay attention to the stats, I, just like many of you, began reading all the numbers and started tracking them, looking for maybe good sources for the right information and quickly found out that good information is very hard to find. And so, I mean, I, I began to research this as if something really depended on it, like my choices or decisions or something like that. But I began to research it as if, as if I had some understanding about how to do this. And so I'm looking at websites, I'm adding up numbers. I mean, I, let's be honest, I don't even do math, but I found myself doing math. I mean, I'm looking at populations of various countries and their infection rates and recovery rates. I mean, the way I was reading, the way I was researching, it was almost as if I was under the impression that at some point through this whole process, the CDC was going to call me up, ring my phone and say, hey, hey, Phil, you know, we see your web history. Clearly, you've got a handle on this. Clearly, you understand what's going on. What do you think we should do? That was the kind of research I thought I was doing. And then as things began to unfold further, it became very clear. No one knows what's going on. No one has any idea uh, to grasp it or to get our arms around it. I mean, I don't even have a, a degree in, in stats or research or medicine or anything like that at all. But the more you pay attention to the variety of opinions that have risen up and even more deeply polarized our culture, and the people that we engage with, and the way that we love, it became abundantly clear. Most of us are not free from pride-filled opinions. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I don't know, I guess you kind of get to choose and pick whatever you'd like to in terms of Scripture or how Jesus lives. But for those of us who wear the name Christ, Paul's exhortation isn't sort of an optional thing. It's something we're going to fail at often and maybe even fail miserably day after day, but it still is a goal to be attained, something to shoot for that we would be free from pride-filled opinions. So what would that look like in a pandemic? What would it look like as you engage on social media and share this opinion or that opinion? How would you live out, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, or even more completely, the very next phrase that Paul uses, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. What would this look like when you wrestle with the question of whether or not you're going to wear a mask? I know it's confusing, and I know it's very frustrating, and nobody hates wearing a mask more than I do. And even when you read the headlines, it's clear that the medical professionals, I mean, MDs can't even decide whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. And of course, we're all wondering, what are our rights in this? And 
are we supposed to lay down our rights? Are we supposed to take up our rights? And Christians are taking very different approaches to all of those questions when the answers are right before us in Scripture. Now, the details, of course, oh, yes, I'll flesh them out, you'll flesh them out, maybe even come to a different conclusion. But what if we decided our guideposts, well, we would find them in the words of Scripture, namely for us, our church family, and those engaged in watching today in Philippians chapter 2. So what would humility that considers others above ourselves look like during a pandemic? I don't know, but I know it would mean a few things. It would look like listening more than talking. It would look like deferring more than getting our way. It would not look like clinging to or demanding that we have our rights met. In fact, the, the poem, the literary poem that's going to follow these verses that we looked at at first, it describes the path of Jesus giving up his rights all along the way. I know, I know it's a scary thing to think about, and it's uh, just incredibly unsettling, and we wonder if we can ever return to having them. But as Jesus lived this out in the flesh, as he lived out his ministry, the three years that he taught and healed and preached and gathered his disciples and helped them understand what the path looks like, as he did that every day, he taught them very plainly. Look, if you're going to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. If you're going to cling to your rights, then they're going to be stripped away from you. But if you lay them down, then God will be the one who comes alongside you to give you peace, to be sure that you're taken care of. Jesus' promise that he would never, ever leave us. Then he goes on to say this, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. In other words, we're getting out of our little bubble. We're moving away from the idea that we have to have it our way. This is what it means for my life to be connected to participating in the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then right before that literary poem launches, Paul gives a summary of what he said, and he said it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. This is what it means to participate and so for you and I to ponder what this would look like in all of our relationships, not just in what we do and what we say, but in what we think and what we want and our desire. This is so key as we live this out. The circumstances that we're in as individuals, community, our city here, our church, across the country, they have never been more suitable for someone who follows the path of Jesus to allow what they are learning, these new muscles that are being stretched and pulled for them to grow a little deeper and a little stronger, a little more full. As we figure out what it would mean for us to live out the story of Jesus, participate in it every day in every interaction.
This week, Josh and I, we were talking about all of this and we were talking about how we're doing and, and uh, whether we feel discouraged or not. And, and uh, to be honest, there are days when I feel very discouraged. I want everything to go back to normal, whatever that looks like. Even when I say that, I know that there are changes that have happened through all of this that I hope never return uh, back to the way things were. But we both acknowledge that as we uh, take, pay attention to our interactions with other people and watch what's happening out in public, that there seems to be a, a low-level anger or frustration that is just below the surface for most of us. And then if it gets poked, it usually comes up like a whack-a-mole, right? It just kind of pops its head right up and, and rears its ugly head. And, and it can show up in all kinds of ways. It can show up in a, in a biting comment or in, in the, a way that we withdraw and decide not to love. But as we were describing some of our interactions that we've had with other people, he said a phrase that I had never heard before. He described one of those interactions that he had had and, and how it went from, you know, not good to bad and from bad to worse. And, and as he says in, in you know, his, his North language, everything kicked off, he said. But then he said this phrase. It was kind of interesting. He said, in the middle of it, we'd lost the plot. We've lost the plot. Maybe you've heard this. And I stopped him and I said, what did you say? He said, yeah, yeah, we've, we've lost the plot. Even before he explained what he meant, I knew exactly what his point was. And he shared with me that it's a phrase that he heard from our mutual friend, Aaron Boyd, that in Ireland, this is something they say, and, and I don't know if they do or not, but Aaron says it a lot, that, that completely lost the plot. How many times over the last several weeks have you lost the plot? I mean, have you forgotten, as I have, in some of our more tense moments or maybe when some ugliness or bitterness or, or anger or frustration comes pouring out of our mouth or our face or our heart, our attitude? Have we forgotten that God is still God, that he still is sovereign? Of course we have. When we read the headlines, it's one of the first things that we'll forget that he's sovereign, that he is in control, because it seems as if anything else is true, that God surely can't be in control of this mess. But we're not the first ones to have ever felt that way. And it's true that God is in control. Have you lost the plot? Have you forgotten that God is redeeming all things? That he is making all things new? Have you lost the plot with your family? Have you forgotten that you're, you're building a beautiful family culture. And of course, there are moments where it looks like anything but that. But that's not what we want to become the norm or even the standard or even acceptable or expected. Have you forgotten, those of you that are married, that you're building a relationship that resembles the relationship that Jesus has with the church? Oh, how many times have I forgotten that? Maybe you've lost the plot. Let's not lose the plot. And there's nothing that reminds us of the plot more fully and more completely than the Lord's Supper, this last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. Now, if you uh, did not know or weren't aware that we were going to celebrate communion as a church family today, now's your moment. Uh, I'm going to talk about communion a bit, but it won't be anything you haven't heard before. And as we do that, you can grab your stuff, and uh, even if you don't have uh, the stuff that we would normally have, wine or, or grape juice, handy, uh, bread or, or cracker, grab whatever's convenient. God knows, he understands your heart. And in a moment, we'll give you about three or four minutes as a family to take communion together.
But if you're going to try to remember the plot, the plot behind what God is up to, the plot that is represented in Genesis all the way to Revelation, the understanding of what it means to participate in the life of Jesus by the way we live and by the way we love, then these elements of communion will be maybe just what you need to remind you. I'm tactile. I'm physical. I know that these elements remind me of what Jesus said to his disciples, that when he gathered with them and he shared the meal, he said, this is my blood and it is poured out for you. And they ate and they drank and they shared this meal together. And Jesus held up the bread before the disciples in the upper room the day before he was killed and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. This is how it helps us remember the plot, that death is not the end, that our lives consist of more than what we can touch and see and feel, that we're reminded that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And it's true. The disciples didn't understand it right then in the upper room while they enjoyed that Passover meal. They had no idea what was coming, that the next day they would watch their friend be beaten and eventually killed. But then on Sunday, that the resurrection would occur. This is the power of the literary poem that Paul gives us in chapter 2. This is the theological foundation for why we participate in the story and the life of Jesus. That when we today, as a church family, we remember the life and the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We proclaim the gospel with these simple elements, and we've decided then that we will live the gospel with our life, which means that when Paul talks about what it means to live with humility, loving others, putting the needs of others ahead of our own, deciding that we will not have pride-filled opinions, that we will defer, that we will listen, that we will sacrifice our life on behalf of other people, this is not because it's a good idea or even the best way to live. It's because we believe in who Jesus is and we decide that we want to live in participation with that story. So Lord, right now as our church family in many places all across this country and even in different countries, as we participate in this meal, we ask that you would pour out your love and your mercy and your grace on every location represented and we pray that you would knit us together in the power of the Spirit. And we do this to remember your Son, Jesus. And it's his name that we pray all of this. And we say it together. Amen.